If you've got a Bible with you this morning, open to Psalm 2, is the text we're going to be reading together, Psalm 2. Um, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read through it together. Psalm 2 begins in verse 1 with the psalmist asking this rhetorical question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him." Listen, if you're in the room this morning and you're a Christian, one of the things that you and I both need to learn to do more consistently and more frequently is interpret our reality through God's revelation. In other words, make sense of life, the life that we, our lives, the lives of those who are around us, make sense of life through the lens of what God has shown us to be true about himself and about who we are. Uh, we, we might ask the question sometimes, why does the world work the way that it does, right? You ever wonder that? You ever just kind of step back and look at things going on around you and say, why do things work the way they work in this world? Some of us might look at the evidences of just brokenness around us and say, why are there so many broken homes and so many broken lives? Why are there children who don't know who their mothers are? They don't know who their fathers are. Or if they do, they're estranged from them because there's been separation and there's been divorce in that family. So they don't have a father in their lives or they don't have a mother in their lives. Why is there so much brokenness? Those of you who are teachers or in education, you see it in the schools consistently. You might ask the question, why there's so many lives that are taken? You look at the murder rates in the urban areas of many of our major cities in our nation, and you see the murder rates that continue to rise. Why are there so many that would take other people's lives, gang violence that exists on the streets of our major urban city centers? Why is there still racial injustice in our nation after decades of legal changes. The laws were changed decades ago, but the hearts did not follow. Why is there still racial injustice that exists in our nation? Why are there some who still look at obvious evidence of it and say that it's no longer a problem? Why is there so much sex trafficking in the 21st century America where young girls are abducted and sold into the sex industry and kept as slaves to the desires, whims, and wishes of wicked men. You look at the world around you and you say, why does the world work the way that it does? Right? Why are we afraid at times to send our kids to school not knowing if they're going to come back home later that afternoon? I don't know if you've watched the news recently in the wake of all the mass shootings that have taken place on campuses across our nation, 
But one of the things that they do is they oftentimes interview the parents of the victims or the parents in those communities or parents in other communities that have not yet even been affected by this type of violence. And oftentimes in those interviews, these adults will say things like this. And listen, I'm going to go ahead and say I've been guilty of saying these same things as well. Saying things just are not the way they used to be. Right? They'll say, well, I remember when I was growing up and my parents would send us outside to play and tell us to come inside when the streetlights came on. Right? And there was no worry about your child being abducted. There was no worry about your child doing any kind of being, being harmed in any way other than the harm they would do to themselves because they broke their leg from doing something foolish. Right? Things are not the way they used to be. And I, I sense that and I see that. But here's what I would submit to you this morning, church, is this is that even those of us who look back on those glory days of the 70s or the 80s or the 90s and we think about our childhoods and how things are not like they were whenever we were raised, I would submit to you that even in those days, things were not the way they were supposed to be. Even then. Just because things are not the way they used to be doesn't mean that when they used to be that way, things were the way they were supposed to be because there was still injustice and there was still heartache and there was still brokenness in life even decades ago. Why does the world work the way that it does? And listen, the Bible's resounding answer, and it's so, it's so relevant on a day like today on Palm Sunday, as we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus the King coming into Jerusalem to be crowned. It's so relevant on a day like today. But listen, the Bible's resounding and clear answer over and over again is the reason the world, the way the world, the reason the world is the way that it is. That's a little tongue twister for you. It's because we as men and women have cast off restraint and rejected the rule of God in our lives. We've rejected him as king and we've rejected the rule of his kingdom. Over and over and over again, that's the answer that the Bible gives. And that's the answer that Psalm 2 would give us this morning as well. Because we've cast off, we've rejected God's rule in our lives. And could it be that in a nation which has continually progressed in its rejection of God's lordship and leadership and rule in not only in our public spheres but also or in our private spheres but also in our public spheres that we're, what we're seeing is the fruit of us rejecting the rule of God and saying we will be autonomous we will be independent we will be the captain of our souls and the determiners of our destinies Could it be that we're beginning to see the fruit of that that's being born in our lives? So when we look back and we say over the last four decades of sweeping change in our nation, that one of the reasons for that is now that we're saying that things just aren't the way they used to be is because we continue to further and further cast off the rule of God from our lives. Psalm 2 is going to say that to us. As Psalm 2 plays out this narrative that takes place generation after generation after generation as people say, I want to be in control and not under it. And so what does this text teach us? What does Psalm 2 say to us? First thing that I want you to see in this psalm this morning that relates to this issue is this, is the identity of this king. Because Psalm 2 speaks of a king and I want you to know who it's talking about this morning before we go any further. 
In Psalm 2, that speaks of this king that God has installed or established. And the psalm, in its original context, when it was first written, it would have been used as a song of coronation, right? So every time one of the monarchs died or was dispossessed and a new king were to rise into power, they would sing this song in celebration of the new king and ultimately the ideal king. The one who would reign and rule rightly and justly and who would establish his rule forever. Like this was a song of coronation. It was used when new kings were installed and the people would look forward to a new king and the ideal king that God had promised. They kept looking for that king. But one of the things that you know if you know Israel's history is this, is that that ideal king never came. Right? In fact, most of the time, those kings that were installed in Israel's history led the people away from God and not towards him. So over and over and over again, kings would be established and installed, but they'd never match the description of this king in Psalm 2. Right? In verse 2, it says the king that's spoken of is spoken of as the Lord's Messiah. The Hebrew word underneath that word anointed there is the Hebrew word for Messiah. And over and over again in the psalm, what you see is this language that's used to describe this king that never matched the historical setting of any of the kings of Israel's history. Right, whenever you look at the language of Psalm 2, no king matched this description. There was no king in Israel's history that laid claim to authority over the nations of the earth. Not one. There was no king in Israel's history that took the nations as his inheritance. There was no king in Israel's history that sat in judgment over the nations to break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like clay pots. There was no king in Israel's history that commanded the kings and peoples of the earth to submit to, serve, and worship him. There is no king in Israel's history who fits the scope of this language that we find in Psalm 2. And yet, Psalm 2 shows up elsewhere in the Bible. It shows up over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, Psalm 2 is the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament. It's alluded to on multiple occasions. Its language shows up in, in Hebrews. It shows up in Revelation. It shows up in Acts and the Gospels. But I want, and it's explicitly quoted in four of those texts. And I'm going to give you two of them this morning. Because when the apostles looked at the language of Psalm 2, they said, there is no king that fit this description in our nation's history. So it must be pointing to a different king, a king that has not yet arrived. And that king showed up, they saw, in the person of Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and let the rabbit out of the bag this morning, right out the gate and say, this Psalm 2 is about Jesus. There's no big aha reveal moment at the end, right? Break the rule of all good preachers, which I profess not to. I don't profess to be one, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that's one of the rules, right? Save the aha for the end. That's not what we're doing. I'm going to tell you right at the outset, the Psalm 2 is about Jesus. It's what the apostles, how the apostles tell us to understand Psalm 2. Listen to what they say. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, the apostles had just met with the chief priests and elders of the the Jewish religious leaders, and they commanded them to no longer preach in the name of Jesus, to no longer talk about Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And in Acts chapter 4, when they return back to the rest of the, the disciples, and they report back to them what had been said to them about no longer preaching in the name of Jesus, this is what they say in verse 24 of Acts 4. And when they heard it, 
They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, open quote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, close quote. For truly, verse 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, the apostles understood Psalm 2 to be referring to Jesus, that as the nations raged and the kings plotted together, you had the Jewish religious leaders, you had the Roman secular leaders plotting together to bring Jesus to an end, to take his life. You had the Gentiles raging against God's anointed and you had the Jews doing the same. In other words, they said Psalm 2 is one of the perhaps most poetic descriptions of the Holy Week in all the scriptures. It's the most vivid description of the Holy Week in all the scriptures outside the gospel accounts. You go forward in Acts, in Acts chapter 13, in verses 26 and following, it says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, speaking of Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, the apostles look at Psalm 2 and they say that language cannot describe anyone in its fullness outside of this one, Jesus. See, Psalm 2 is ultimately about Jesus. In fact, you read further on in the book of Revelation and you see this language of dashing the nations with a rod of iron shows up again in Revelation 1 as we see this picture of the risen and reigning Christ. And it's ultimately all moving toward the end of human history whenever Jesus would return on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood, all tatted up, ready to defeat all of his enemies and make them as his footstools. That's where all this is headed. And that's the king that is being spoken of in Psalm 2. God's anointed, the one that God has appointed to rule and reign over all nations and over all creation. And yet we also learn from this psalm that the natural default mode of the human heart is to rebel against this king. Because we are all born rebels. Look at what the psalmist says in verses 1 to 3. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, church, you know what the default mode of the human heart is? The default mode, the, fact, the, the settings that we come pre-programmed with subsequent to the fall is this, is that we want to be in authority and not under authority. 
That is the default mode of every heart in this room. That is the default mode of every, the heart of every pastor. That is the default mode of every, the heart of every parishioner. There is, there is, there's no difference. It's the default mode of the human heart. Each of us is born with a fallen desire to be the sovereigns of our own little kingdom. We want to rule. We want to reign. We want to run things. We want to call the shots. We want to make the decisions. We want to determine our direction. We want to set our course. We want to chart our trajectory. That's the default mode of every single human heart. Listen, this is why every child, parents, some of you are like, preach. Right? This is why every child, no matter how compliant they may be in public at times, they push back in private. Come on. Right? Can I get some help? Okay, come on. Right? Every child, no matter how compliant they may be, how submissive they might be in public, they push back in private because their little hearts want to be in authority and not under it. Listen, parents, let me swing to the other side for a moment. This is why many parents struggle shifting from command mode whenever their children are young and directives to just being counselors and coaches as they age and grow into adulthood because our hearts as well want to be in authority. Right? This is why, this is why some spouses in the room This is why some spouses boil over in anger, right? In the context of relational turmoil. We boil over in anger in those heated moments because we are not getting what we want and we want what we want. We want to be in control. We want to be the authority. And this is why some spouses just simmer under the surface and withdraw in silence until they get what they want. See, the default mode of the human heart is to be in authority and not under it because we are all, each of us, are born as rebels. Right? That's, that's, what the, that's what the text teaches us, that we rage against God's commands, that we push back against His counsel, right? that we plot against Him. In fact, that word plot literally means this. Like it shows up elsewhere in the Psalms to describe the, to, to, to describe the concept of meditation, right? Of meditation. So we actually actively think about how it is that we can cast off the restraint of God's rule in our lives. That's the natural default mode of the human heart. And there are several reasons I'd submit to you this morning for that. And the first one is this. is because we, listen, the reason that we want to have, a, want to be lawless, right? We don't have anybody putting any kind of demands on us. We want to be lawless. The reason that we are born as lawless individuals is because we are lawless. We are lawless. Listen, in verse 4, it says this. In verse 4, the psalmist says that we're told that God sits in the heavens. That word sits is a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe a king who is enthroned, who is seated on a throne. And listen, some of you in this room, some of us in this room are infatuated with monarchs, even though we cast off the restraints of one as a nation. <laughs> it's one of the reasons we don't do well with the idea of a king. We want a president that we can elect and tell how we want things run, right? We don't want a king. Right? It's cultural baggage we've got. But listen, one of the the reasons 
One of the reasons we are not submitting to the king is because we don't look at the throne and we don't see God seated there in all of his majesty and all of his glory and all of his splendor and we don't stand back in awe. There's no awe in our lives. And listen, whenever you are aweless before God, there will be lawlessness in your life. When there is no respect before God, there will be lawlessness in your life. Right? We're... we're, I don't have one on me right now, but mine's in my backpack back there. It's a little device called a smartphone, right? Many of us have one of these things, a little backlit, right, screen that you can look up all kinds of things on. Like you can look up Bible verses. Some of you are like taking notes right now. Praise Jesus, right? But you can also, some of you might be surfing Facebook right now, right? You just need to shut that down for a minute. But listen, I, I, I thought, as I was thinking about this whole concept of awelessness this week, of not seeing God seated on his throne and standing back in awe, of his majesty, splendor, and glory. Listen, the way that we are set, as we come into this world, we are born as those who are aweless. We're born like a, cell, like a smartphone junkie, like a smartphone addict, right? Who's constantly staring at their screen, right? And they're, they're, they're this little backlit device. And listen, you could take them on a tour of the Rocky Mountains. You could drive them down the Oregon coast, You could put them on an airboat in the Atchafalaya Basin in southern Louisiana or in the Florida Everglades. You could take them out to the Painted Desert or you could set them down in the middle of the Colorado River as it cuts through the Grand Canyon was surrounded by these majestic cliffs and they would just be staring at this little device. Because they're awed by the wrong things, lesser things, so they cannot be awed by greater things. That's our problem as humanity. Right? Whenever we think about God being seated on the throne in all of His majesty and splendor and glory, we don't stand back in awe at that great glory because we're awed by lesser ones. But listen, not only is that, one of the re- that, not only is that a reason why we push back against the authority of God because we don't have any awe for Him in our lives, but there's another reason as well. Listen, nobody, nobody seeks to cast off the rule of Jesus in their life because He's just a good dude. He's just a good teacher, right? Nobody seeks to cast off the rule of Jesus in their life because of His compassion for us. Nobody looks at Jesus and says, man, I wish that Jesus guy would just stop healing people. Or wish that Jesus, man, I can't stand that Jesus guy who just cares for people and he's kind to people and he's tender towards people. I can't, I wish Jesus would just cut that out. That's why I can't come to Jesus. I'm going to push back against his rule. We don't push back against the rule of God in our lives because of his compassion for us. Listen, church, we push back against the rule of God in our lives because of his claims over us. Because of his claims over us. Listen, in the text, in verse 3, the, the, the kings and the nations, they're all plotting and raging. And they're saying, let us cast off the bonds and the cords. Some of your translations might even say shackles. But what the author has in mind, they are not prison shackles. They're not being imprisoned. The, the, the Lord and His anointed aren't imprisoning anyone. What they're doing is actually liberating people. But they're liberating them with a, a yoke. In fact, that word cords and ropes or bonds that is used there in verse 3 to describe what they're wanting to cast off, they're wanting to tear off and throw away, is actually this picture of a rope that is woven together and placed around the neck of a wild ox or a wild donkey. 
one that had been living in lawlessness, running rampant and wild, doing whatever they would wish, wherever they would want, and there's been a yoke that's been placed on them to begin to direct them and to begin to guide them and begin to move them in a certain direction. Right? Now, for an, uh, for, for an ox or for a donkey to have a yoke placed around their neck meant, that, meant something. It meant there was somebody they were accountable to, someone who was directing their actions, somebody they would have to answer to, somebody who was their owner. Somebody was their master. And that's what these kings of the earth and the peoples of the nations are trying to cast off. Is any sense that there is someone that I answer to and someone that directs my actions that I have a master other than myself? That's the reason people push back and want to cast off the rule of God in their lives is because they are not resisting his compassion, but they're resisting his claim on their life. That they belong to him and they are not their own, either by virtue of creation or new creation. By birth or new birth, they are accountable to God. We're all born rebels, church. And listen, truth be known, the scriptures do speak of the cords or the bonds of God. Listen, they do not speak of them in the way that these kings and these rulers were seeing them, nor in the way that you and I are trained to see them. When the scriptures speak of the cords of God, I want you to listen to how they talk about them. In Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. When the scriptures speak of the cords of God, it's not cords of imprisonment, but it's cords of freedom and healing. It's cords of kindness and tenderness and compassion. That's the cords with which God seeks to lead. That's the yoke with which God seeks to lead his people. In fact, you get to the New Testament and Jesus says, listen, if you're weary, if you're labored, if you're tired, I want you to come to me and find rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's cords of tenderness and kindness and compassion. Listen, when Jesus shows up and he breaks into human history and he's born of a virgin, one of the things, and he enters in his public ministry, what does he begin to do? Right, he stands up in the first time that he, can, he teaches. Right? He comes home and they're like, hey, you've been gone for a while. We heard you're, you're a rabbi now. Hey, come teach in the synagogue. And so he opens a text from Isaiah and talks about liberating captives and setting free those who are in bondage. And then subsequent to that, he begins to do that very thing. He comes across a woman who had been plagued by a discharge of blood the majority of her life. And she just gets close enough to touch the hem of his garment and she is healed. It dries up completely and she is restored into fellowship in the community. He comes across another guy who had been plagued by hosts of demons all of his life. His name was Legion. He lived among the graves and he cut himself constantly. He'd been shackled there. And Jesus drives the demons out of them into a herd of pigs and sends them over a cliff and restores the man. And they come back and they find him sitting clothed and in his right mind, whereas once he had been out of his mind and naked. 
Jesus begins to heal people and he sets people free and he liberates those who are in bondage. See, so many people push back against the rule of Jesus because they say, I don't want a tyrant dictating to me. Does that sound like a tyrant? Or does that sound like tenderness? Does that sound like compassion? And when Jesus says, listen, if you want to know how to live, if you want to know where life really is and how to flourish and have all fullness, you come to me and I will teach you. Take my yoke. Listen to me. Let me guide you. Don't cast it off and rebel against it. It creates all kinds of destruction in your life. And listen, that is not only for those who are outside of Christ, but it's also for those who are inside of Christ, for Christians as well. Listen, one of the reasons racial injustice still exists in the church is because there are churches who are casting off the rule and the restraint of God in that area. One of the reasons that there may be turmoil in your marriage this morning, church, is because you're raging against God's design for it and casting off His rule within it. And it creates all kinds of chaos in your life, in your marriage, in your family. That's the reason. If, you, if we would submit to His good rule, if we would come under His yoke and let Him guide, he, he, he would bring healing. He would restore. He would liberate. Don't you want that? Jesus says, the Bible says, God says, there's no other place to find it other than under his yoke. It's meant to heal you, not to harm you. Now, we've got 11 minutes. <laughs> Listen, church, one of two things will happen in the way you respond to this. I'm going to hit this quick. Either we can bend or we can be broken. Those are the options. We can bend or we can be broken. In other words, we can bend our knee before the, the lordship of Christ and before his kingship and rule in our lives or we can be broken by it. Listen, his rule over those who bend their knee to him is so tender, it's so healing, it's so kind, it's so compassionate. But listen, for those who continue to push against it, it will be terrible. Not only in this life, but in the one to come. Listen, listen to what the text says in verses four to six. He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. Right? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, those who push back against his rule. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The psalmist says God laughs at the futility of our attempt to cast off his rule from our lives. And essentially he says that no matter how hard we, and how much we rebel and rage against the rule of God, that God will prevail. He will prevail. And so he says you can either bend or you can be broken. It is much better, church, to bend here and now and experience the tenderness of God and His kindness that leads to repentance than it is to harden ourselves against Him in rebellion and experience the terribleness. Terriblenessness? That'll work, right? Of His wrath when He comes to judge. So how do we bend now? 
And that's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time this morning. How do we bend today? And this is what the psalmist says, by taking refuge under his reign. Look in verse 12, at the very end of the psalm, we're told, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Listen, to take refuge in him in this context is not some abstract emotional experience. In other words, it's not just taking refuge in, in by claiming God as our refuge in our suffering, right? There are many of us who like to think that we're fleeing to God as our refuge whenever things get difficult. We're fleeing to God as our refuge whenever things get hard, whenever we're suffering in life. We look to God and we think about finding shelter under the shadow of his wings, right? We think of God as being a comforter of all those who are suffering, and that's what it is to take refuge in him, is to fix our mind on the fact that God can shelter us and cover us from anything, any threat or any harm. But that's not how the refuge is being spoken of here. The refuge the psalmist is talking about here is not a refuge in suffering, but it's taking refuge in God through our submission. Through our submission. The beginning of verse 12, it says, it says, it shows us how to take refuge under his wings. He says, you take refuge under the wings, you take refuge in God and take refuge under his reign by kissing the sun. Now, what is, like, what does that mean? Just go give him a big wet one on the mouth? Like, is that, is that what we're talking about here? Listen, in the ancient world, in, in traditional cultures, oftentimes to kiss the hand or to kiss the feet of a person in power was a very public display of submission to their authority. To submit to them, to come underneath their rule, to come underneath their authority. And oftentimes, listen church, it was a very, not only a very private thing, but a very public thing that you did as you went before the king as he was seated upon his throne in front of all of his court and you would bend your knee and you would kiss his feet or you would kiss his ring or you would kiss his hand to show to all you've been you've been subdued by this king you'd come under his authority and oftentimes it was a very public display so taking refuge in his reign is not something that we do privately in our bedrooms only but it's something we do very publicly in our witness. And listen, one of the steps for some of us in the room this morning in the way that we need to take refuge under his reign might be the step of identifying as a Christian finally once for all in public through baptism. Some of us have been wrestling maybe with a fear of man in our lives because we don't want to be the center of attention. We don't want everybody looking at us. We don't want everybody talking about us. We, don't, we just want to kind of be like a wallflower, right? We can just kind of sit in the background and nobody will see us. But Jesus says to follow him, one of the first steps of following him is identifying with him publicly by saying, I've died and I've been raised to walk in this newness of life. And for some of us, that may be the next step for us to take refuge under his reign is to kiss, his, kiss the son through baptism and saying publicly, I belong to Jesus. I'm one of his. He has saved me, not because of anything that I've done, not because of any of my works, but solely by his grace. He's brought me to life from the dead and as I've been laid down in these waters and raised up to live this new, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, grace-filled life, I want the world to know it. And I will identify with him publicly. Is that you? Next Sunday on Easter, we're going to baptize. 
It's a glorious thing, right? As we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, celebrating the being raised to life. And maybe you need to take that step. If you do, listen, I want to invite you to come connect with us. Connect with me, connect with Brian, connect with Duncan, connect with one of our pastors here, one of our elders here, with Stanley. And let's talk about what baptism is. And let's baptize. And let's say, let's move, let's move forward and publicly saying, I belong to Jesus. Kiss the Son, take refuge in His reign. But it's not only that, church. Listen, submitting to Him might also mean for you this morning that you would submit your desires to Jesus. Right? You think about your desi- the desires of your life, bringing them under his rule and reign. Some of us this morning, you may say, listen, I, I recognize I have this- some desires in my life this morning that run counter to the rule of Jesus in my life. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to be wise and submit those desires to me because not everything that you feel in your heart is good. Do you know that? Your heart is not just generally good. The Bible says your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can fathom it? Who can plumb its depths? And and you find, I find, I'm going to speak for myself, first person, I find year after year after year, I cannot fathom my own heart. I cannot plumb the depths of my own heart. God continues to bring things up and begins to put fingers on desires in my life that are not healthy, that are not good, as he brings conviction. And the question is, church, are you willing to submit those desires to him, or are you just going to keep trying to ram your way forward to get what you want? So a couple of years ago, um, I was traveling to meet our students as they went to summer camp in Colorado. And I was, they, they left on a Sunday morning and I stayed behind to preach. And so I got on an airplane that afternoon and I flew up to Colorado to meet them. And so when I got to DFW airport, I was running late for my flight. And I had my, my backpack with me and I just carry all, man, my backpack has all kinds of stuff in it. I don't even know what's in there some days, right? Um, and so I, I get to the airport and they run my backpack through security and uh, they, pat, you know, they, they run it under the x-ray and then they pull it to the side and they say, hey, we need to do a bag check. I'm like, man, I don't even know what's in there right now. And so I walk over to the side and they begin to search through it. They say, Is anything, you know, they, the whole drill, is anything in here that's going to hurt me? Not that I know of. So they open up the backpack and they begin to shut, you know, kind of dig through it and they find my pocket knife that I left in my backpack. And the TSA agent says, you can't bring this on the plane. And he says, you have two choices. Either you can let, leave it with us and we'll dispose of it, or if you want to go get an envelope, you know, right, self-addressed stamped envelope, and we can mail it back to you. I didn't have time to go do that, and so I just left it with them, let them discard it. You probably made it on an auction site somewhere. I don't know, and the government made money off of it. But listen, the whole point of that story is this. Listen, as, as a Christian, there are times in which you have to bring your desires through the x-ray machine of God's vision and allow him to say, yes, this is good. Yes, this is healthy. Yes, this is safe. No, this is not. Are you willing to submit your desires to him? It's a part of kissing the sun. But not only do you have to submit your desires to him because not everything you feel is good, but you also have to submit your deeds to him. 
your deeds as well, not just your desires. Some of us this morning may have deeds in our lives that are running counter to the rule of Jesus and Jesus is inviting us to be wise and submit those deeds to him. Those very practical areas of our life, the things that we're doing today. And he's saying, stop. It's destroying you. Stop. It's eroding your very soul. Stop, it's inconsistent with who you are and your identity. If you are a born-again Christian who has been covered by the blood of Jesus, he's saying, stop. He's appealing to you and pleading with you, saying, be wise, let it go, leave it in the past, because it's not consistent with who you are. A couple of years ago, I went for a run after Thanksgiving uh, down in South Louisiana, and um, you know, that post-Thanksgiving run, man, you just gorge on Thursday and go work it all off on Friday, and so that's what I was doing. And so I left my, my parents' home, and I ran a very familiar route I used to run in high school. And as I turned the corner on this one particular street, I could see somebody running toward me from the other direction. And I was like, oh, somebody else, right? Post-Thanksgiving little purge here. And so as I'm running towards them, um, I could see them kind of jogging towards me, and I could see this kind of billow of smoke around their head. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And so as I get closer and closer, what I realize is that there's this young lady, right? She's dressed in workout attire, and she's running along there, right? But she's running along with an e-cig. And she's just running along there, and every once in a while she stops and takes a little hit, right? And she's vaping as she's running. Now listen, I've seen a lot of things in my day. That was a first. That was a first for me. Right? I've said oftentimes, man, I run to eat. Right? I can just eat whatever I want. But I've never seen the t-shirt that says I run to vape. <laughs> right? Those two things just don't go together. Those two activities don't merge with one another. And listen, there's some things in our lives that are that way. And Jesus says to kiss, the Bible says to kiss the son is this, is to submit all of our deeds to him. Pass it all through the lens this is honoring to Jesus. This is glorifying to Jesus. Is it healthy for me? Is it healthy for my family? Is it healthy for those around me? Am I bringing all of my desires and all of my deeds under the good and gracious rule of Jesus? Listen, church. I'll leave you with this this morning. One of the things this psalm teaches us as it, as it admonishes us to kiss the Son, as it appeals with us to kiss the Son and bring all of our loves and loyalty under Him. Let Him rule and reign our lives. And say, yes, these are healthy desires. No, these are unhealthy desires. Yes, these are deeds that you should be engaged in. No, these are deeds that you need to repent of and turn from. That you would kiss the Son because you can either bend here or be broken there. Listen, I'll leave you with this statement. The, the, one, one, of the, one of the things the psalm says to us is this. There is no refuge from God. There is no place that you can escape from him. There is no, there's no end that you can run to the ends of the earth and the psalms say elsewhere that his eyes even will find you there. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. There's only refuge in him. Have you ever turned from sin to trust in Christ? Has God ever opened your eyes to the wickedness of your heart? The fa- I can't even fathom how deep the wickedness goes as he keeps turning things over year after year and bringing them to the top. 
for me to see and turn from? Is there an all problem in your life? Are you awed by the wrong things rather than being all of the right thing? I want you to know that Jesus stands this morning tenderly inviting you to come and be awed by his mercy, to come and be awed by his love, to come and be awed by his grace. And then submit yourself to his law, to his rule over your life. And if you can honestly say, that's something I've never done. Jesus invites you to do that this morning. Listen, I'll I'll be at room five at that mouth of this door right here in room five this morning. If that's something that you want to take that step this morning after the service, I'd love to connect with you and talk to you more about how to do that. And if you're here this morning and says, look, I, I, I did that. But you know what? I've, I've, I've slid into this pattern of life in which I have, God's been turning up things, but I haven't been turning from them. And I need to do that this morning. At least I'll be there to connect with you there for prayer about that as well. And so I want to invite you this morning, kiss the Son. Submit your life to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it shapes us, for the way that it informs us, for the way that it conforms us to your image. And Father, I pray that on this Palm Sunday, as we celebrate the kingship of Jesus, that even though he was rejected, and even though the chief priest, elders, and the religious leaders and the political leaders of his day, they raged against him and plotted against him, meditated and, made, meditated and made plans to bring him to an end, that you, your purposes in human history were not thwarted because of it, but actually were fulfilled through it. And even though they put him to death, Father, you raised him to life. And that he is ascended and seated at your right hand in all majesty, splendor, and glory. May we be awed by that. May we be taken back by His rule. His tender rule. His compassionate rule. His cords of kindness that He wants to place over our necks to guide and lead us toward healing and flourishing. Help us to see that the brokenness of our life comes as a direct result of casting off those cords and that healing can only come through putting them on. Father, this morning may we kiss your anointed and submit our lives to him in all kinds of private and public ways as we bring our desires and submit them to him and let him sift through which ones are healthy and which ones are not as we bring our deeds to him and let him sift through which ones will lead toward flourishing and wholeness and which ones will lead toward brokenness we pray it in Jesus name